you don't have to look far today for evidence of a climate disaster. Just this summer, unprecedented killer heat waves disrupted lives and businesses across northern Africa, Canada, and Europe. Deadly floods overwhelmed cities in China, and closer to home, wildfires swept across the American West, while powerful hurricanes destroyed power utilities, displacing tens of thousands across Texas and Louisiana. And climate refugees, now from South America, are making daring journeys across jungles to migrate north. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. In September, more than 200 medical and health journals worldwide collaborated in publishing an editorial that called Climate Change the greatest threat to global public health. And they're not alone. Faith leaders are increasingly raising awareness and calling for action beyond their houses of worship. Just last month, leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Anglican Communion united for the first time to urge world leaders to act and act quickly at the upcoming United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow an annual gathering of policymakers from around the world. Our abuse, our war against the climate, affects the poorest among us. Reconciliation with creation, in obedience to our Creator, proclaims the love of God. The world has just enough time to get this right. Among the thousands gathering in Scotland will be Sister True Dedication, a Zen Buddhist monk and student of the venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. Han is a Vietnamese-born monk who espouses engaged Buddhism. That's a spiritual practice that applies the teachings of the Buddha to bring about social change. The world-renowned teacher and prolific author of more than 130 books suffered a stroke in 2014 and no longer speaks publicly. But Sister True Dedication has just edited a collection of his writings on caring for the natural world. That will be published this month as Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. In Glasgow, she will deliver Han's teachings in a keynote address at the first-ever TED Climate Conference held in advance of the UN meeting. Sister True Dedication, who refers to Thich Nhat Hanh as Thai, the Vietnamese word for teacher, spoke to me from the home she shares with 200 other devotees of engaged Buddhism. I'm in Plum Village, which is in the southwest of France in the beautiful Dordogne Valley. Um, and this is the monastery founded by our teacher, Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, almost 40 years ago. And many of our listeners, I imagine, are very familiar with the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh and his teachings. He's a prolific writer. So since his stroke in 2014, I understand that you have been gauging in a more public way with the, with the monastery and in helping to spread the message um, of, of the teachings of, of the monastery. Is that, am I getting that correct? As a community, yes. I think uh, since our teacher's stroke, we've all had to step up and step out a bit as we continue to 
practice and do our best to embody Thai's teachings, but also to continue to evolve and adapt them to our own situations that are unfolding. And Thai left us such a, a rich body of teachings. And uh, I guess we're the kind of lineage carriers some, in some way as his community to, to carry those teachings into the future. How did you find the community? When did you join it? Mm. So the Plum Village community here in France was the first one that Thai created in the 1980s. And I came uh, as a 21-year-old, a millennial, literally in 2002, I first came here. And what I found here in the French countryside was I experienced it as a community of wisdom, like these open, relaxed people. It's primarily um, our roots, spiritual roots are primarily Vietnamese. So we have a lot of Vietnamese monks and nuns, but people from all over the world come and visit Plum Village for mindfulness retreats. So what we offer here is what we would call an environment of mindful living in the beautiful French countryside. It's a very peaceful place. We practice mindful walking, mindful breathing, mindful eating, of course, sitting meditation, relaxations, and also we're very close to nature. It's real simple living uh, in community. And I think that was what attracted me to spend more time here as a, as a young woman in my summers. And the wisdom that I found here, of course, from Thich Nhat Hanh, who we often call Thai, to be able to, to hear this fountain of wisdom was so impressive for me. And it was the first time also I really encountered like a community of wise women among the sisters. And they weren't afraid of any questions I had about life, the universe and everything. And that, that was very striking for me. Um, so I think that's what left the deepest impression because I just graduated from university. And I think many of us, we think, oh, you know, go to university, we'll learn all about the world. And I went to one of the best universities in my country. And then when I graduated, I was like, is that it? Is that all? I felt my deepest questions hadn't been answered. So that was really what, what set me on the path for coming here every summer. And I'd save up for my stays here and then eventually uh, just didn't leave anymore. <laughs> you come from a Buddhist tradition. Talk to me about what school of Buddhism that you follow um, and what those core principles are that guide your way of looking and walking and engaging in this world that we live in? So I belong to our teacher's Zen Buddhist tradition. So when we think of all the different kinds of Buddhism, in Zen, we belong to the Northern School, so the Mahayana School. So if you like, we're cousins of the Tibetans. We're cousins of the traditions in Korea and in Japan and in China. And we're, we're more distant cousins of the Theravadan traditions um, of this, what we call the Southern Transmission, the orange-clad ones. <laughs> and in the Zen tradition, uh, the word Zen literally means meditation. That is a good reminder that there are diverse practices. What do you believe in the Zen tradition, the socially engaged Buddhism that you follow? What beliefs guide you? 
we focus very much on what we'd call presence or being in the present moment and um, cultivating that quality of um, immediate presence. Uh, so we're not so much um, into complexity, but more into simplicity, authenticity, immediacy. And so in our tradition, we'd say that you don't have to wait a whole lifetime to touch awakening. You know, awakening is something that each one of us can touch with a moment of mindfulness in our day. When we step outside the door and we see the sunrise or a beautiful tree or hear a bird song, that can be a moment of awakening. And in our tradition, the way our teacher Tai Tignat Han has invited us to see the world is through the eyes, we would say, of interbeing, interbeing. So instead of you existing alone and me existing alone, we inter-are, there's a kind of connection between the two of us. There's a connection between us and the people in our family, those we love. We inter-are with the loved ones in our family. And there's a profound connection between us and our planet. We inter-are with the planet. And so in our tradition, we are looking and facing our current crises, both our social crises around discrimination and systemic injustice, our planetary crises around destruction of ecosystems and climate crisis. We look at these through the insight of interbeing. And this means that there's no such thing as me saying, I'm separate. This is, you know, I'm going to deal with my part of this and your part of it is your problem. We all belong to each other and this is a collective problem that we face together. And one very interesting aspect of interbeing that particularly comes through in our tradition and that our teacher has really emphasized is not only the sense of interbeing across space, meaning everyone who's alive on this planet right now, we have this profound connection to and we have this profound connection to our planet. We also touch what we call interbeing across time, that we are deeply connected to our ancestors, to our parents, grandparents, and everyone who kind of came before us. And so when we touch a deep awareness um, of presence in this moment, we are also getting in touch with our ancestors in us. And this becomes very important when, for example, we want to change our habits as an individual or as a society. Those habits are pushing so strongly because they've been going on for many, many, many generations. And when we talk about healing in society, some of the deepest wounds in society have been going on for many, many generations. So in our tradition in particular, we really bring this aspect of ancestors, which comes, interestingly enough, from Vietnamese culture. They have a, a deep practice of awareness of ancestors Every home has an ancestor's altar, and it can be a very deep part of our spiritual practice, which is developing a really conscious relationship with our parents, grandparents, and the ancestry of, of the lands where we live, um, of our culture, society, our particular spiritual traditions, whatever they may be, because they are informing how we show up in the world and this in terms of climate action and in terms of social change, our connection with our ancestors can be an incredible source of strength 
and also an incredible source of humility when we also acknowledge, you know, their weaknesses that have led us to where we are. So these are some of the key themes, um, ancestors and the insight of interbeing and really being present in the present moment that come through in our particular tradition. Tell me about this new book that's coming out that speaks to specifically that relationship between the beliefs of being Zen and our planet. So we're very happy uh, that this book is coming out into the world. Uh, the title is Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. And in this book, we collect together Tai's most recent teachings before his stroke about how we can really engage in the world uh, to address problems in society and to address the crisis that our planet is in. And in particular, we've um, brought together his teachings that he gave on youth retreats. Tai gave so many hundreds of talks, thousands even, that we haven't yet been able to publish or to translate from either the French or the Vietnamese. And so this book um, brings together Tai's teachings really for, for activists of our time and really cutting to the core of these questions. How can I keep my peace? How can I not be consumed with anger and hatred? How can I act without losing myself in action, without burning out? What is a path through this fog? How can I handle my despair? How can I handle my fear? What is particularly powerful about this book is it includes some of those deepest insights from Zen Buddhism that are actually at the foundation of um, our own capacity to like awaken, to get an insight that can be a real empowering insight on our path. And so it features wonderful teachings from um, a sutra called the Diamond Sutra, which we sometimes call the oldest text on deep ecology. It's so profound to understand this deep interbeing between ourselves and our planet. And so the, the book is really a presentation of how these deep teachings can equip us to have the insights we need to be able to sustain our action, to be able to transform our fear and our despair. And then the book also contains everything that Tai taught about a, a spiritual path that can give us the kind of strength we need. So on the one hand, there's the Zen awakening in the book, and in the other hand, there's this real um, handbook for spiritual resilience, which is what we're all going to need for the next <laughs> decades to come. You know, in the opening pages of the book, I was struck by the way in which Mother Earth is introduced. And I was thinking about this because I had just listened to Greta Thurberg at the UN. You're shaking your head, so I suspect you heard her too. The changes that the world needs we need to walk the talk. Just a note for our listeners, on September 28th, Greta Thurberg addressed 400 young people gathered in Milan, Italy, at the Youth for Climate Conference. This keynote made headlines as she challenged leaders for not doing enough to meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. We must find a smooth transition towards a low-carbon economy. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah, 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 blah. It was painful to hear. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. A level of anger understood. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. A level of 
Disappointment, completely understood. Blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. A level of impatience, I understood. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. But the, almost this loss of hope, the blah, 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 to me, wasn't a rhetorical turn of phrase as much as it was an indictment that this young generation of climate activists are becoming skeptical and losing hope in the adults who are charged with leading. When you saw her speak, what was your takeaway? How did you hear her? For me, I heard the truth speaking. And my first response was gratitude because in our kind of authentic Buddhism, we always want to see reality as raw and as clearly as possible. I saw a really raw reality, and I also heard the voice, as you say, of the young generation in Greta's words. In Buddhism, because we have the Four Noble Truths, right, and we say we need to understand the suffering in order to find the way through the suffering, and it's by finding the way through the suffering that we can find the happiness and we can get there. This is the Four Noble Truths, short version. I heard the suffering and I was so grateful that Greta expressed the suffering of her generation. I also heard this, yeah, this, the rawness of the, the despair of what it must feel like to be a fool 20 years younger than me and have to know that they have a whole lifetime to face. And it gave me a lot of energy because Part of my passion is to help equip young people with the spiritual resilience and resources they need to handle that despair and to handle that fear and to handle their anger so that their anger doesn't burn them up, but can really become a source of, if you like, fierce compassion to sustain them as they act out of love for the planet, for each other, for their generation and for future generations. The question about hope is interesting. There's something I love about uh, Christiana Figueres, who was the architect of the Paris Climate Agreement, and she's a good friend of ours and a practitioner in our tradition. And she says that um, hope is um, an optimism, is an energy that we bring in, but we don't expect the results. Any reality we are given is not set in stone. It can be changed. Today, at the global level, we face a rapidly accelerating climate emergency. This is the decisive decade in the history of humankind faced with today's facts. We can be indifferent, do nothing, we can despair and plunge into paralysis, or we can become stubborn optimists with a fierce conviction that no matter how difficult we must and we can rise to the challenge. This is really close to the teachings in Zen Buddhism. We bring positivity and the results will take care of themselves. We don't say, I will only do this if it will work. I will only take action if you promise me that we'll be able to, quote unquote, save the planet. There's a certain unconditionality uh, when we take uh, mm. action uh, with full presence. We say, I am doing this because the act of doing this action is of itself good. 
it is an action that carries love, that carries the spirit of protection, that carries the spirit of justice. And what I was most moved by, actually, in Greta's speech were her final words. You know, hope doesn't belong uh, to politicians, doesn't belong to governments. It belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. And for us, this is also how we understand change, which is each one of us is, if you like, a cell in the body of our society. Collective awakening is made of individual awakening. We can't have the political will to change unless thousands and millions of people have the insight to change. So the agency that you were speaking of earlier takes place in each one of us and then finding ways to give voice uh, to change we need to see. That is hopefully what we would like to see in democracies, right? Sister True Dedication is a Zen Buddhist nun ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. We've been talking about Hanh's new book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Coming up, what consumerism does to our spirit and our planet. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Zen Buddhist monastic Sister True Dedication. She's a disciple of Zen Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh. Hanh, who the sister calls by his name Tai, is a prolific author, peace activist, and a leader who's spread the positive benefits of mindfulness around the world. This week, Harper Collins released his latest title. Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Sister True Dedication edited and offers commentary throughout the book. On October 15th in Edinburgh, she will be offering a keynote at TED Countdown, a pre-conference organized in advance of the UN Climate Action Gathering in Glasgow. 
let's get back to the conversation. This new book, in the opening, where you call for a new way of seeing, are we being called to reflect on how our beliefs about the earth, our beliefs about limited resources, finite resources, are connected to our, also our consumption practices? It is our relentless consuming, craving, grasping, greed, this relentless Mm -hmm. growth economy that has led to our current problem at some level. There are also some deeper causes maybe in uh, our lack of respect for the earth. But just to take the aspect of our consuming, often we consume because we feel empty inside. We feel somehow lacking. We, we grasp and we reach to consume something, whatever it is, whether it's food, drink, Netflix, music, the device, Netflix, computer wait, games. Are you at my house? Did you see? <laughs> <laughs> so we're consuming all of these things. And the trigger often before we want to consume is we feel some discomfort. We feel some, something lacking inside. And so we reach to consume something. With the energy of mindfulness, opening up our senses to a deeper relationship with the earth in the present moment, we touch this very important practice in Buddhism, which is called dwelling happily in the present moment, feeling like it is enough to sit here and enjoy the sunset. I don't also need a drink in my hand. I don't need to take a photograph for Instagram. It is enough to enjoy this sunset. This is a miracle unfolding before me. And this is called Drista Dharma Sukha Vihara, dwelling happily in the present moment. If each of us can learn how to be in the present moment, how to let our eyes see, our ears, our bodies feel what it's like to be on this extraordinary planet surrounded by this incredible beauty don't need all this consuming. In the deepest teachings of Buddhism, we already have more than enough conditions to be happy. As monks and nuns, we live very simply. We don't need much to be happy. And for many people in the world, They know how to do this. Unfortunately, in our developed, industrialized, hyper-consuming societies, we have forgotten how fulfilling the simplicity of life can be. And what's even worse, we're like doubly poor because we even lose our capacity to enjoy the miracles of the planet or the miracle of the presence of our family member sitting right at the table next to us. So we're doubly poor because... Not only do we lose ourselves and our capacity to be fulfilled, we're missing out actually on this treasure that would be there for us if we weren't so distracted by all this wealth and consuming. So this is one of the strong messages of the book is for each of us, we have this deep challenge. Am I able to sit, be at peace in my body, in touch with the natural world? Can I do that? And when we can do that, we can access a kind of nourishment, fulfillment, and also, honestly, a spiritual dimension that is there available for us if only 
we can be available to it. Mm. Mm. It's not lost on me that the power of listening is in and of itself an entire section here. Why do you call the power of listening the brave dialogue? What makes listening brave? Mm. So I think in this time of crisis, the language of crisis, the language of emergency, we're all having a physical response and an emotional response to it. And I think as human beings, our task right now is to be able to cultivate the kind of resilience so we can handle this fight-flight panic response that we're all having to what we're seeing on our screens, what we're um, hearing. And so the listening that we all need so urgently is, first of all, to listen our bodies are living this. First of all, we've lived a pandemic, which already has been extremely stressful for many of us. And we are also living the knowledge that in our lifetime, so much is going to be lost. And there will be such injustice. There will be so many refugees. Those who are already suffering will be the ones who will suffer even more as we move forward. And so the listening that we all need to have the courage to do is to listen to ourselves and to really listen to what the information, the screens are telling us and to what that means. As we listen, we want to bring compassion center stage and not fear and not denial. And so in our Zen meditation tradition, we would say that it is that depth of listening that leads to the awareness of the suffering. And with the awareness of the suffering, we get the insight that we want to do something about it and we can see the way through. And going further in this section of the book on brave dialogue, we also talk about how to have the courage to listen to those who have different views and values from our own. What's extraordinary because of the truth of interbeing is that when we can offer that quality of listening to someone who we really disagree with, but we offer them the gift of listening, the gift of our patient breathing and attention while they try and explain their truth, what's extraordinary is that they then have the capacity to offer us that same gift, to hear us out. The dialogue becomes possible. So we're not fighting for one, the right over the wrong, but we're fighting for deep understanding of where each side is coming from. Do you think that we're teaching the next generation how to do that? Well, part of the good news is... I like how um, you start with the good news. <laughs> is that mindfulness is now being taught in schools, and that's uh, something that we've been a part of, training teachers to do this. And the other thing that I am really happy to see evolving is uh, the younger generation's awareness of embodiment. Because actually when we listen, we're listening with our body. And our body and our breathing will reflect if we are reacting or we're feeling angry or we're feeling anxious. And so the more the young generation and all of us can really be in our body as we listen, release the tension, 
allow the in-breath and out-breath to be as smooth as possible and offer this really stable presence through our breathing and our listening and our concentration of the other person. Sometimes as we listen, we don't need to exactly pay attention to the words themselves. They may be bitter or toxic. We want to sort of focus behind the words and really look them in the eye as another human being what are you really trying to tell me here? And what can I really hear in you? And this is all possible with training. And I have great faith that it is possible to teach the young ones how to do it. <laughs> this book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, it feels very much directed to a younger audience. It feels very much directed, as I was reading through, to a generation that is losing hope, a generation that is uh, being challenged and drawn in multiple directions. How did you decide that these were the teachings, these were the values you wanted to put forward? I think the simplest answer is that the talks where many of us were sitting there and it's like um, our hair was standing on end, you know, I mean, where you sort of get goosebumps. So I think those talks that Tai gave where we got goosebumps, um, we wanted to bring those to a wider audience. Tai himself had wanted us to make such a book for young people, and he'd already given us a kind of outline for the teachings he wanted to include. So we, we already had a real sense of what he felt was the most important message for young ones. And I think, I think over the months and years to come, we will really um, yeah, develop practices around being with some of those really strong emotions, like what they're now calling climate grief, climate despair, climate anxiety, eco-anxiety. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. These really um, deep existential uh, feelings that are really hard to, to sit with, to be with, and can so easily feel overwhelming. And... Sometimes we might want to go directly and, you know, immediately just address those ones. But the fact is that's already connected to our daily despairs and our daily anxieties and our daily fears. So the two really go together, how we can um, offer practices that allow us to, to breathe, to relax, uh, to do walking meditation. This is one of the most powerful practices we mention in the book and that we use in all our retreats is to be able to walk in such a way through a park, um, uh, through the city, to be able to walk in such a way that we can embrace these emotions as we walk. I think there's an often a misconception about Buddhism that you need to be in the sitting position to get mm. all the insights. Mm. And this is not true. We can do it uh, while lying down and relaxing, mm. while practicing the prostrations, or even while walking or even while eating. So there's so many ways that we can integrate these practices, but I hope we can really speak to yeah, some of these really acute pains that many of us are facing every time we open a news website. listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, I'm talking with Sister True Dedication, a Zen Buddhist monastic. She's a student of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, 
Earlier, Sister True Dedication described what she finds hopeful about the engagement of young activists calling for a change in behavior and policy. The urgency of the messages include apocalyptic warnings about the climate. As we get back to the conversation, Sister True Dedication explains her Zen Buddhist tradition's views on time, change, and karma. Would you talk a little bit about what is, you know, what is the Zen Buddhist view when it comes to the idea of the apocalypse? In Theravada Buddhism, for example, there is a very strong kind of apocalyptic theology. Um, For listeners who are not familiar with Zen Buddhism, the stream of Zen Buddhism, what is the view of this world, theologically speaking? Tai has invited us to think of time geologically. And I think that's nice and scientific as well. So there's a huge scope of time. And we understand that humans, were a very young species. And I think this is very important to keep in perspective. And uh, we include this teaching in the book that Mother Earth will be able to survive as a planet, even if it takes millions and millions and millions of years to heal from our toxic waste and our destruction. Species may not survive. That beauty, that diversity, the wonders of life that we know today may not survive. Scientifically, we know the planet will continue to exist. And we know that our karma, the fruits of our action of body, speech, and mind, they sort of resonate infinitely. To your question about the apocalypse, one of the meditations that we uh, include in the book is something uh, that our teacher began to speak about in the, the final years of his teaching. And he invited us to realize that if our society continues as we are going, there is no doubt that our civilization will end. Our current path is unsustainable. It's a fact. We look at all the metrics. We look deeply at the situation of suffering. We look at the damage that we're doing. We know that is the direction we're going in. And our challenge, the challenge of our generation, is to be able to change the direction of civilization. And in order to be able to have the energy to do that, we need to have the, the, the conviction, the energy, the awakening, the realization needs to be strong enough. We can't be in denial. We can't pretend that we can delay it to some other time. We have to sit with that truth, digest that truth, and realize We are really in a terrible situation and the danger is imminent. We have to realize this. And with that realization, with that awakening, suddenly no change is is impossible. No change is politically impossible because we realize we've got to do this. We've got to turn this around. And that will comes from the insight and the realization that the situation is as serious as it is. And I think the reason why we avoid thinking about this, we don't dare to think about it, 
is because we don't have the spiritual strength to handle it. And I think for each one of us to have a spiritual dimension in our life, some kind of spiritual practice, whether it's mindfulness and meditation or any other faith tradition, we're going to need so much spiritual strength to face the crises that will be unfolding in our lifetime. And when we know we've got that spiritual strength, then we can face the truth and then we'll have the energy and resources we need to make the adaptations that we need to make. And what's very interesting in the Zen tradition when we look at this question is the way Tai says it is that when we realize that that is extremely likely if we're not able to change the direction of our civilization, many other civilizations have collapsed, ours is no different. When we realize that and we can accept that truth, there's a certain peace there's no longer the panic. There's a certain peace. And with that peace, we have all the freedom to take all the necessary actions. We're not in denial. We're not in resistance. We're like, we've got nothing to lose. We've got nothing to lose from having a radically different economy. <laughs> There's nothing to lose because we're going to lose everything anyway. In the current crisis, right, we speak about mitigation. We've got to reduce the emissions um, and destruction. We speak about adaptation. Our infrastructure in our society needs to transform for what is going to be a rapidly changing climate. But there's this other aspect, which is we also need humans who can handle all these changes. We need this deep strength to handle the stress, to handle the despair, to handle the fear, to handle the disharmony between people. Um, at the small national, international level. And this is really where the, the practice of mindfulness, mindful communication, mindful consuming, a mindful approach to our daily life can give us this kind of spiritual strength that can equip us to handle what we will be needing to face in the coming years. Mm. So much to think about. And what I hear is for anyone out there who thinks that being a Zen Buddhist is to sit still quietly in a monastery and contemplate and meditate and walk in the gardens and that's it. They're wrong. We say that if there's seeing, there must be acting. So with mm. the insight comes a shift in our behavior. In our monastery, we have one lazy day every week and... Every day we practice uh, relaxing, we practice walking meditation, we, we practice sitting meditation, we practice eating meditation. So we, we have this aspect of slowing down, being fully present, being with our body, listening to our body. And that, in fact, is what gives us the energy to be able to sustain our engagement in the world. The two go together. <laughs> what is a walking meditation, Sister so you open the front door, and uh, maybe some days you have to lock it behind you. As you turn around on your front doorstep, take a little moment to take an in-breath, and as you take the first step, it's an out-breath. And perhaps your pace is what we'd call an, a relaxed pace. Hopefully you're not running to your car. Hopefully you've, you've got a, a minute to spare. The idea is not to be super slow motion so that your neighbors think that you're a robot or doing something strange, but to look like you have all the time in the world and you are happy to be alive. 
So this is a relaxed practice. And the key to it is that you really feel the contact between the sole of your foot and the ground. And so it's as though we say you're walking with your feet and not with your head. And we combine in a very natural way those steps with your breathing. Hopefully you have a little more distance than your front door to your car. Maybe you get to walk down the street a little bit. And maybe you might take three steps for an in-breath, perhaps four or five steps for an out-breath. And the challenge in walking meditation is to arrive in every step. So kind of to land into your life. And again, you're still feeling that contact between your feet and the ground. And you breathe in and out, step, step, in, step, step, out. And in our tradition, we often use key words to really arrive in each step. So we might literally use the word arrive, arrive, arrive for the in-breath, home, 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 home for the out-breath. Hmm. Now, the key with meditation is you want to be aware of everything going on inside and around you. So you have this awareness going on. You're, you're walking with the sole of your foot. Your breathing is naturally combining with the words, arrived, 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 home, 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 home. And then you let your senses open to the blue sky, to any bird song, perhaps to the tree just down the way, to the sound of children laughing across the street. And you open up all the senses. And we know that when we're in touch with those five senses, we know we're in the present moment. And so this, our walking meditation, it might just be a couple of minutes. Or if you're lucky and you can have a full stretch, maybe of 200 yards, you can really settle into this flow. And the trick is you become so fascinated with this experience of walking and with what's going on, what you can see, what you can hear, perhaps the feel of the breeze on your face. You become so fascinated by this, you've already stopped thinking, but without realizing that you stopped thinking. You were feeling rather than thinking, feeling the ground under your foot, feeling the breeze on your face, hearing, seeing, and you become just simply a walking being, enjoying walking down the street, in the present moment, arriving into the present moment with each step. Mm. I was struck as you were talking and doing that walking meditation, and I was thinking about your words about the resilience of this planet, the resilience of this earth, even if this civilization, this species, doesn't survive. It's interesting because I see in different generations around me those who have adopted a fatalism, that they look at the metrics, they see the numbers, and they say, save your breath. I am reminded, as I was thinking about and walking with you on that walking meditation on this planet, that everybody is responding and reacting differently. 
And that art of trying to find yourself in it is not always easy. And what's really fascinating is that all is not lost because we are building our future with every step. So the energy we bring to every step is already planting that energy for the future. So to those who are falling into nihilism, which is we say is one of the two dangers in Buddhism, either eternalism and nihilism, we have to really be attentive to it because in the nihilistic mindset, we think that future has nothing to do with us, that we don't participate in that future. But according to the deepest insights of interbeing, this moment now contains the past and contains the future. We contain our ancestors and we are our descendants' ancestor now. So everything we do counts. In every moment, we are building the future, whether it's a human future or a post-human future. Every action is energy that we're putting out into the world. It's not game over. It's not game over. And that future, we will be participating in it, but in different ways. Mm. And that gives us a huge energy to bring the whatever qualities we want to bring to each moment, whether we're walking, whether we're listening, we want to bring a quality of compassion. We want to bring a quality of respect for life. We want to bring a quality of peace, forgiveness, reconciliation. It all counts. Nothing is lost. And in this, Buddhism's really close to science. Nothing is lost. Nothing is destroyed. There is still so much we can do. We can generate in our own lifetime healing, love, joy. It's completely possible. And we can start it today. There's nothing to give up. Mm. Sister True Dedication is a former journalist and a Zen Buddhist nun ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. She's the editor of his latest book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. That's all for this week's show. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to Plum Village for the recordings and the sounds that we heard throughout this episode. If you would like to learn more about us, sign up for our newsletter or subscribe to our podcast, please visit interfaithradio.org. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. I'll see you next week. Bye.